from the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Now to your host. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Kalita Leaquat. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the gender pay gap in genetic counseling. First up, my co-host Naomi Wagner will speak with Chloe Barnett and Leslie Buhite, authors of The Gendered Pay Gap in Genetic Counseling from the Journal of Genetic Counseling. Chloe Barnett is a second year genetic counseling student at the University of Cincinnati and has a background in sociology. She is the first author of the Journal of Genetic Counseling article, which she completed as part of her master's thesis. Chloe's co-presenter, Leslie, is a certified genetic counselor who currently works as a senior product manager to create digital experiences around genetic testing for patients and providers alike. She's held various leadership roles within NSGC, including PSS chair and membership committee chair, and is passionate about gender-based workforce issues. Following our conversation about this article, NSGC podcast subcommittee member Rowan Awad will speak with Stephen Kyles, the Senior Director of Genomic Services at Quest Diagnostics. Steve oversees and supports the genetics activities and needs of other areas of the company, such as corporate medical, R&D, laboratory services, finance, legal, compliance, and commercial. And now over to our first guests. Hello, everyone. I am thrilled to be here today with Chloe and Leslie. Yeah, thank you for having us. Excited to be here. Great. So I'll start by sharing some of the main findings, and I'm reading right from the abstract here. They stated that in the best-fitting multiple regression model, male genetic counselors earned $23,736 U.S. dollars more than females in non-direct patient care roles and 1,552 US dollars more than females in direct patient care roles. So wow, lots to unpack here. Before I get into more questions, I just wanted to address a question that came to mind immediately for me. And that was, did this study compare data on GC salary for non-binary people or genetic counselors who do not identify as either male or female? Yeah, so I can jump in there real quick and answer that we asked the gender question exactly the way it's asked in the PSS. So we asked people to identify if they were female, male, non-binary, or if they preferred to self-describe or preferred not to respond. And all but one of our respondents indicated that they were either female or male. The final respondent indicated that they preferred not to respond so that one person was not included in the analyses. Okay, I don't know if the NSGC has data on how many genetic counselors identify as non-binary, but it may be harder to do the statistics if we had very few respondents choose that category. Would that have been correct? Yeah, absolutely. So part of the difficulty in this study was our response rate for sure, and that is a limitation. And I think if we had had any respondents who indicated that they were non-binary or third gender, it would have been very hard to include them in kind of powered analyses. Okay, maybe food for thought for future studies. But um, 
Before we get into the nitty gritty, I'm wondering, Leslie, could you tell us a little bit about how the team decided to do this study and how it compares to the NSGC professional status survey? Yeah, that's a great question. So as I served as chair of the professional status survey from, I think it was 2015 through the 2018 reporting year, we started to see this trend of a pay gap. Um, this is when in society we started having a lot of conversations around gendered pay gaps. And um, similar to Chloe's last point about being able to do powered analyses, we just weren't able to do that in the PSS on a uh, every other year reporting cycle. And every year we would get questions around, you know, hey, we see this gap, is that significant? And, and we could never answer it. And so um, we knew as chairs that we would have to have a project dedicated to this effort. And uh, you know, I'm excited to be engaged with a genetic counseling program of which I'm an alumni. And they put out a call for research ideas and I just thought, hey, maybe someone's passionate about this. And, and luckily Chloe was. So, um, so we just decided to embark on this as part of her um, student thesis or capstone project. Um, and the way that it compares to the professional status survey is interesting in that Chloe just described we used a lot of questions from the survey itself so having been a part of the survey team for as long as I have been we knew some of the limitations of how we asked questions but we also knew in order to make comparisons from our study here to the PSS we would want to replicate questions around salary um, as specifically as we could and we actually use those exact questions around salary um, and we really want to thank our partners in the PSS subcommittee for helping us do that. Um, but in broad sense, you know, the, the dynamics of our study population are similar to the PSS, um, but our population does skew a little young in, in our cohort. And so, you know, there's caution anytime you're going to generalize this data. The other way that it's probably not really specific to the PSS is, you know, this is really a, a gendered pay gap study, but it really is of people who are who are white. We don't have great diversity data in this particular study, and I think that's reflective of where we are as a profession. We've seen diversity data grow in the PSS over time, and so we'll be able to see you know, correlations over time, and hopefully we can pick up a unique study in the future there as well. But overall, the cohorts are fairly similar um, in you know, what their dynamics are, how they are in direct patient care versus non-direct patient care, and can be, you know, compared with the proper level of caution. Great. That was helpful to compare to the PSS. And I know, as you had mentioned, it was a goal to be able to do a powered study. So, Chloe, could you tell me a bit about the sampling techniques you guys use to try to hopefully be able to have the numbers to do some of the analyses? Yeah, definitely. And this is a question that we've gotten a lot. So I think I'm really glad to be able to kind of shed some light on this. Um, so, you know, initially we sent the survey out through the NSGC email blast, which is how most student surveys are sent out now. At the end of that survey, there was a request to forward it on to any male colleagues. But we were having some difficulty actually getting male genetic counselors to respond. So because we wanted to have that powered analysis and we wanted to increase the number of our male respondents, we actually had members of our research team reach out directly to their male genetic counseling colleagues. So at that point, we had a slight uptick in the number of male respondents, but really not enough to do any of the meaningful analyses still. So after that, I actually went through the NSGC membership database and combed through state by state all you know 4,000 
members to try and find members who appear to be male either by you know photo name or profile um, so once i had compiled those state lists i sent out direct emails to the genetic counselors that i'd identified and they were of course all blinded to each other and we also included a statement just saying you know if you've taken this survey before or if you've received this request we're sorry and please don't take it again and so some of the concern around the first part of our sampling, which was encouraging people to pass the survey on and having actual research team members reach out directly, um, was that we could have introduced bias by sampling only those more experienced GCs. Is that reaching out to people directly? Is that the snowball sampling technique I've heard people talking yeah, about or asking yeah. about on so Twitter? I think, I think a lot of the confusion is about that kind of term, snowball sampling. And so the two parts that are actually snowball sampling are when we asked people to pass it on to people that they knew, so genetic counselors within their circles, and then when we had members of the research team um, reach out to males who were known to them. But I think one of the things that I wanted to point out and that I think is really reassuring about our results, because this is something that we were able to address during our review process too, was that more than two thirds of our male respondents actually completed the survey after I had sent out their statewide emails. So I don't necessarily think that the initial snowball sampling was biasing towards a more um, experienced cohort. And then as Leslie already mentioned, we did compare all of our demographics between our male and female groups, um, and also compared the overall demographics to those reported by the PSS. And so in the initial analyses, none of the variables that influence salary were different between our male and female groups, except position, which of course is expected. And then all of our demographic distributions were similar to those reported by the PSS, um, except as we've kind of talked about previously for the age and, and years of experience. And um, I think part of that difference is that the PSS only reports percent of respondents under the age of 40 and percent of respondents who graduated after 2010. So it was really hard for us to make that direct comparison. And more of our respondents were under the age of 40 and had graduated and more had graduated since 2010. So overall, our cohort was actually younger and had less experience. Mm, okay, but between the male and female respondents in your survey, was there a difference between their age and years of experience? No. Or was there no statistical difference? There was no statistical difference. Okay. Okay. You know, I wonder if that comes into play with some of the things that the, you know, the having the younger cohort, do you guys think that's concerning, interesting? What are your thoughts on having that perhaps slightly younger cohort in your study? Yeah, I mean, I think from my perspective, I do know that it is becoming more and more reflective of the field. And I think part of the reason why it's captured that way in the PSS is to kind of put people in um, more identifiable bins. And I know we're gonna talk about it a little bit later, but I think there were pieces of the kind of societal ideas around the pay gap that we just weren't able to capture because our cohort was less experienced and overall a little bit younger. Mm, okay, such as leadership over time or taking breaks off work, something like that. Yeah, I'm thinking more about the kind of breaks off work, um, part-time, employment, maternity and paternity leave, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm wondering, I, I know we mentioned that the snowball sampling got a lot of um, questions to you guys. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what other, was it the, these demographics or was there any other factors that got um, a lot of questions on you guys for Twitter or direct messaging? What was the response to this article like? Yeah, I think the response has been pretty positive. Um, outside of the snowball techniques, um, the other one kind of related is the ratio of, or proportion rather, of um, men to women, males to females in this study. Um, so compared to the PSS, we know we have you know thousands of respondents and um, we had about the same number of males in our study um, that we often see in the PSS. And so it, it does represent a bigger chunk of respondents. And um, that's one thing related to the sampling technique that, um, that folks have put on our radar, but largely on Twitter and elsewhere um, through email and um, some journal clubs that I've been a part of. A lot of folks are just really responding that they're glad we have specific data. So we know that this is the first study of its kind and we know that the data isn't perfect. Um, the techniques to get there aren't perfect, but you know, we have to, I always say, throw some spaghetti and see where it sticks. <laughs> and this was our first <laughs> attempt to do that. And I think this, um, a lot of folks are energized for this to be a springboard for future studies. Um, something we realized here is, you know, using the terminology around quote unquote leadership experiences is a really loose term. And feedback we've actually often gotten on P the PSS subcommittee is, you know, we can't be describing people by title, and um, we need to be describing by what people are doing. And I, I think our study team felt very passionately, um, and the, the feedback, kind of the buzz around the paper is aligning to this, that, you know, looking at really what, how do we as a profession define a leadership experience across all the variety of roles that genetic counselors sit in these days, and how does that relate to pay? Um, and the last piece that people have brought up too is, you know, this is, this is a gendered pay gap studied based on salary, but there are so many other things that contribute to overall compensation that a study that looks at overall compensation um, may be appropriate in follow-up as well. But I think what folks are saying on the interwebs and an email is just, you know, thank you for giving a piece of data to this discussion to use as a springboard. And they're really excited to see what other data we might be able to generate over time. Yeah, definitely. I was super excited to see this paper and I'm really glad we get to talk about it more. Um, one of the things that I, I immediately thought of was that just by publishing this paper, you're helping increase knowledge about this, um, even if it's not perfect. Uh, I know one of the things you actually focused on in the paper was the perception of the gap and whether or not it exists. And you had asked the respondents whether they believe there is a pay gap between male and female GCs. What did you find with that question? Yeah, so I mean, we definitely found a difference in the perception and that more of our female respondents were aware of the gap and fewer of our male respondents were. Um, and that was statistically significant. And I think it was especially surprising to us considering that we were using the PSS data as a springboard. And as Leslie had mentioned, you know, there were several years where I think the data was showing that there was this possibility of a pay gap, but it was, it was still underpowered. And then in 2018 and 2019, the PSS did actually publish data saying, yes, there's a pay gap, here's what it is on average. And so I think the fact that that, you know, is distributed to every NSGC member and people are still unaware is really showing that there needs to be a larger conversation about this. Definitely. 
and I know, I think also, even though this study, as Leslie mentioned, focuses on salary, I do think it's also a great springboard for us to think about what other things should we be thinking about or collecting or addressing. Um, and I thought it was interesting. I noticed that in the study, um, it was noted that the predictive model only predicted 54% of the variability. I'm wondering if you have ideas about what other factors were not captured in the study. And I know we've alluded to this already, but what other factors could be affecting the variability of GC pay and that we should maybe look into in the future? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, I spoke to this a little bit, but I think some of the variation that we weren't able to capture is just because we had that smaller sample size and um, that we had a younger and less experienced cohort. And so some of the big societal explanations for the gap actually do focus on that, you know, kind of part-time work, breaks in employment. Um, and those are often due to family or childcare responsibilities. And we know from previous research that women do tend to, to have those experiences more frequently. Um, so, you know, we initially wanted to include these experiences. We thought it would be really important to capture that, but most of our respondents just hadn't had them yet, so we weren't able to include them in our models. Um, so I think it's possible that, you know, genetic counseling being a pre predominantly female field and therefore having a larger proportion of GCs actually take on those responsibilities either once or, you know, several times over their career could be a contributing factor. And um, even if the genetic counselors in general aren't having these experiences early in their careers, which is evidenced by our study, I think it's possible that employers still include these expectations when they determine the value of their workers, um, which I think is something that's really, really hard to measure. And we're definitely limited in what we're able to capture. And certainly we weren't able to capture um, employer attitudes within this study. But I do think that part of the gap may be explained by those kind of unequal expectations by employers. Leslie, do you have anything to add? No, I think you hit the nail on the head, Chloe. I think if there's, you know, the profession is not um, excluded from societal issues that do exist around gender and pay gaps. And I just think we need to tease out what is the, um, essentially the, the impact of those societal pressures versus some of the, um, you know, leadership experience and, you know, timing issues that you just talked to with our cohort, right? Maybe they haven't experienced um, even being laid off and having to find a new job right. or, you know, something like that. Um, there was a unique trend to around negotiation in our study, and we haven't really been able to talk about that a lot, but I do think that, that looking at, um, you know, what is cumulative over time? Um, you know, we, discuss, we, we could explain a variability at this point in time around someone's salary, but I do think, um, you know, thinking about one's career longitudinally and their salary or, or potential total compensation in that way, you know, things can have a, a, for use of the term that we've used a lot, snowball effect and understanding mm -hmm. what those, those things are, unique in genetic counseling that can potentially address some of the variability that we weren't able to address with this particular study. Yeah, and that actually um, reminds me of a really good point. So within that particular model that you're citing, um, you know, it's a, a point in time. So we're holding all of our factors um, stationary, so they're held at the average, and then the only factor that is actually moving 
is the position gender interaction term. And so when we look at things like our negotiation and our leadership variables, which were incorporated into the model as percent increases, um, it's not explaining change over time. So can we go back to the negotiation piece for a moment? And can you remind me, was there a difference in the rate of negotiation between the males and females in this study? So overall, within our general cohort, there was not a difference. Um, they negotiated at around the same rates um, with a median amount of negotiation attempts of two. Um, I did do kind of a deep dive into our old data, even though this wasn't included in our study, but I know it's something that we had kind of talked about previously, um, just to look at who had negotiated and when. And so um, we did not necessarily include this, but I think it's interesting to point out that of our respondents who did not negotiate at all, um, we had 39 female respondents, which was 13.8% of our female respondents and 14 male. Um, so 19.4% of our male respondents who indicated that they had not negotiated at all. And additionally, in our study, um, while male and female counselors had similar rates, um, you know, we did see that males earned more per negotiation attempt. And that's kind of where my, and my point may not have been utterly clear, but around kind of the cumulative effect over one's um, career, you know, if we look at this study as a point in time and we know that it's skewed towards um, potentially younger um, folks in our profession, then I think some of the variability um, for them may not be the same variability for others. And we may see this gap persist in different ways um, because of negotiation events that could or couldn't happen. So yeah, while we saw similar rates, we did see, you know, men earning more per, per attempt. So, you know, thinking about all this, I know it's created a ton of chatter and I'm wondering for both of you, what do you think genetic counselors should do with this information? Just from my perspective as somebody who is getting ready to graduate and has been hired, and you know, I have a lot of colleagues who are going through the same process right now, and I think just having this information out there has really sparked the conversation, and I think encouraging people to continue to have conversations around salary, um, with their colleagues, especially people who are new grads, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think for me, there's um, three key things that come to mind and I'll summarize them quickly. But one is around the piece we were just talking around, which is negotiation education. Um, just in my personal career, you know, I didn't know there were things in a total package you could negotiate um, if salary can't be negotiated. Um, you know, it's that whole mentality of just, understanding that a negotiation is, um, I went to a, a conference once and someone said negotiation is just an exchange of information. And I think when we um, can educate ourselves around the, the practice of negotiation and then apply it to our salary, um, we as a whole profession may be able to be better advocates for ourselves in closing a gap or at least um, better understanding why that gap may exist at our institutions. Um, the second one is, you know, engaging in the practice of um, something I said earlier, which is around defining, like, what are we actually doing from a leadership perspective that could influence salary, particularly from an employer's viewpoint. So, you know, I, I think anyone has always has like a passion project on the side, for example, and then you may go to your annual review and that's not really included because that's not 
included in your career ladder, let's say. Um, and so understanding what are those kind of levers at the employer level from a, a leadership perspective that could elevate one's salary, I think is really important to look into and define at our own institutions and be sharing across the profession. Um, and then understanding it as a profession, you know, what do we value as leadership experience across our various domains? Um, and then the last one is just like continuing the conversation. I know that may sound a little fluffy, but like I said, this is a springboard for a lot more conversations. We know there's a lot of DEI efforts happening in our profession, and we should be doing studies like this in the future um, ongoing all the time. And to do that and to not have to employ snowball sampling techniques and to not um, not not publish on non-binary or third gender um, individuals, we need people to respond to surveys around this. We need the profession to really engage in conversation around this if we want to better understand it in meaningful ways and, and then be able to translate those um, research findings and into evidence-based action. Definitely. And um, taking into account what both of you said um, would be great, especially for those encountering a job change right now or new grads. And just as we move forward, I'm really excited to see what else happens in this research space. So I really appreciate you talking through the study more and hope people check it out. It was great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having, having us. us. To read Chloe and Leslie's full article in the Journal of Genetic Counseling, visit nsgc.org forward slash Journal of Genetic Counseling. Now I'm going to pass the mic over to Rowan and Steve. Welcome, Steve. It's my pleasure to host you on today's episode. Uh, my pleasure for being here. Thanks for having me. Our listeners just heard from two authors on a recent publication that addresses the gendered pay gap in the genetic counseling field. I would love to get your views from an employer's perspective. You previously spoke on the topic of self-advocacy and salary negotiation. Tell us more on how you became interested in this topic. I've been out in the field a long time. When I first uh, got into the field, obviously the salaries were nowhere near where they are today. So I, I became one of the early advocates for pushing for salary and, and working together with other counselors in my hospital, in my region, uh, doing salary surveys, speaking about the importance of basically advocating for ourselves. Uh, we had to negotiate, we had to renegotiate, we had to use all the resources we could to try to get salaries uh, to a, a more respectable area. So it was something that I took on really early on in my career, really back in the late 80s uh, into early 90s. And it just became an ongoing uh, passion where uh, as I got into positions where I was now hiring people, I could, I could further that uh, and and hopefully advance the profession to where I thought it should be. Mm -hmm. Well, given your background, could you comment on whether you think the hiring manager or team may contribute to the gender pay gap in genetic counseling? So I think it's really interesting. We obviously have a small percentage um, of males in the field, so uh, it's hard to know uh, exactly how that work, how that might play into it, but. One of the thoughts that I had was, since we are 95% female, most of the hiring managers are also female. 
So I really wonder if there aren't some unconscious biases when it comes to hiring managers thinking that maybe the male candidates are negotiating more or require more money to secure those positions. So I, I really think it's incumbent upon the hiring managers, whoever they might be, to really take a look at how they're treating all their hires and uh, do they see a difference within their own team. It, for me in particular, I would say nine, more than 95% of my team is, is female. So I, I, I don't even have statistical uh, ability to, to notice a difference. But I do know that there is no difference just based on the, on the small numbers uh, in terms of uh, there being a gap. But I, I, I think we need to look at that from a, from a hiring manager perspective across the profession. It's interesting that you bring this up. You talk about most of the hiring managers being female. Um, there are studies out there that look at negotiation skills and the fact that male and female applicants, even if they are negotiating at similar rates, that males are still sort of ending up with a higher salary and just more successful in general at negotiating salary increases. Do you see truth to that? whether the hiring managers are females or male? Well, I, I think it, it's hard to know exactly, but I do wonder if that, if that might have some validity, but also in conjunction with that, as a society, we have men and, and women being brought up a little bit different in terms of expectations, being the breadwinner, the expectation of the male making more money in a relationship and being the, the, the primary source of income. And if people are having families, there's women on maternity or in some cases taking time off mm -hmm. to raise the kids for a period of years. So the male becomes the sole financial support. And just the what we see in movies and TV, just the men having more of an expectation to go out there and negotiate. Uh, and we've obviously spent a lot of time trying to educate the membership around the importance of negotiating. And it's not, it's not just a male or a female thing. It's, I mean, everybody needs to, to advocate for themselves. As a profession, uh, as you mentioned, there's certainly studies that show that women are less likely to advocate for themselves, uh, and that might contribute to it. Uh, but I also think as a general rule, the personality of genetic counselors are, are less uh, likely to sell themselves. They tend not to be salesy and businessy, and they're really more about taking care of patients and, and not really focused on, on selling themselves in terms of their worth. Uh, so that, I think, might also contribute to that. On the same topic, Steve, of recruitment and hiring, as you well know, male genetic counselors are still very much a minority in the field. Um, in fact, per the most recent professional status survey, 5% of respondents did identify as male. Do you believe that employers may have a bias towards recruitment of males or male genetic counselors? I'm not aware of that. I really think it has more to do with the recruitment into the field. And I would say for all the work we've done in, in 35 years, we haven't 
moved the needle at all. Because when I got into the field, it was 95% female. And here it is 35 years later, and it's still 95% female. So uh, I, I do think that the, the lower salaries going back to the 80s and 90s were definitely an impediment for trying to recruit more males into the field. Uh, they did not see it as a high-paying job, so this was not something that uh, was very desirable for somebody who was looking to support a family. I think with the work we've done in the in trying to get salaries changed, and certainly we've seen in all kinds of studies in terms of desirable jobs, best jobs of the future, uh, and the salaries have changed significantly in the last 20 years, really more in the last 10 years. Uh, that I would hope that that would start to have an influence. I don't know how much employers can really have an impact because once the genetic counselors, once you're in the field, I don't think there's a very high unemployment rate for genetic counselors. So I, I'd imagine all the counselors who want a job can get one. So it really has to do with recruitment into the graduate programs. And from my experience, they they're not a biased against males, they're, they're, they're looking to have males. Um, so I would hope these last few years, um, we might have seen an increase in males in the program so that we can start to see uh, the, the needle move a little bit. But of course, as the profession gets bigger, like when I got into the field, there was only a few hundred counselors, now there's 5,000. So it's gonna take a lot more no numbers to, to move that needle, but hopefully we can start seeing it. That's a really interesting point. And I was gonna also get your perspective on within an organization and sort of after a hiring process occurs. You know, the referenced study in this episode mentions this glass escalator effect where men in other female dominated fields obtain leadership and managerial positions at a higher rate than equally qualified women. Do you see any truth to that? Well, it's, I can't really argue with data. Um, I wonder if because the, the male numbers are so small that it, it might be artificially skewed. If we had 20, 30% and you saw those same numbers, uh, I would tend to buy into it more. But I actually wonder how much of it is desire. Um, and if you say, how many men are pushing for these leadership positions versus how many women are pushing for it, from a percentage standpoint, I would, I would imagine more men are interested in taking on these positions from a percentage standpoint. From a sheer number standpoint, it should be, I mean, even a really small percentage of, of from, our, from the females will end up to be a much bigger number. But again, I wonder if it goes more to the personality of a genetic counselor. I mean, I, I know plenty of female genetic counselors in leadership roles, um, and I think some of it is more personality-based. Uh, people that have that desire to take on leadership, more business, business savvy, that's more of an interest there. And I think as a general rule, people who go into genetic counseling, at least for the last 40 years, the majority of them, it's more of a helping profession. They want to advocate for patients. They enjoy the science. They, it's all about helping patients. Mm -hmm. And, and I, don't think, uh, I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but I think for a lot of people, that's just not an interest. I would imagine, since we have such a large preponderance of females, that there's certainly enough of them that they could fill a lot of these roles. 
but then you get into the the other bias that oftentimes these leadership roles are not necessarily reporting to another genetic counselor but you're dealing more in a management structure either in a hospital or a business or a university so there now you're often dealing with uh, the, the potential biases there and that might play a bigger role in some of the more senior type positions I believe also that there's this idea that you know moving away from direct patient care into non-direct patient roles embodies more of these masculine values and sort of shifts the identity away from that of a helping profession and so that these types of role in general um, sort of give more leeway for better negotiation less organizational structure and potentially you know getting more opportunities so it sounds like your point is perhaps not necessarily gender or sex-based, but more of the type of setting or leadership role or the, even the personality of the genetic counselor here or himself. Yeah, I'd agree with that, mm -hmm. totally. Well, as you know, we now have a new sort of wave of recent graduates, and then also there must be several um, genetic counselors currently looking for, for positions to be hired. What advice would you give from an employer perspective on narrowing this gender pay gap? If, if I could only get people to remember one thing, it is never accept the first offer. There is, there is an expectation from an employer's perspective that somebody's gonna negotiate. Now that doesn't mean that there's always room but almost always, and you will never know unless you ask. So if somebody just offers you a position and a job and they say, here's the salary, and you say, I'll take it, you don't know how much money you left on the table. But I guarantee you, you left money on the table. Might not have been a lot, could be a thousand bucks, 2,000 bucks, but all you had to do was ask for it to get it. So that to me is the number one biggest rule is negotiation is expected. So I would say do your homework, know what the going rate is, know what the recent grads from your program received as their starting salary last year, know what the going rate is for people in the role you're looking at. The knowledge is key. That to me is the biggest thing. And, and I think from a, from a negotiating standpoint, if everybody out there does their part, then it helps everybody. So uh, this is also where helping colleagues, so this is where sharing information is helpful because you telling your, your classmates and your colleagues, you know, well, here's what I got or here's what they offered me. Um, sharing that information gives power to everybody. And whenever, whenever a genetic counselor gets a raise or a higher salary, it benefits everybody because the uh, overall salary median goes up, the average goes up, uh, and th that's how salary ranges are determined. So we're in a position now where the, the, the demand for jobs is, is outpacing the counselors uh, to fill them. So it's a buyer's market, so to speak. So when they're looking for you, you have more power than you think. One other thing to add around uh, negotiating is we focus so much on salary and obviously salary is one of the major pieces, but you have to look at the total compensation package. With all the opportunities and all the different companies, there's how much vacation do you get, there are bonuses, there is potentially commission, there is 
401k matching. There is employee stock uh, options and all of these things become a piece of your compensation. So the salary uh, is, is only one piece and make sure you're not just totally focused on that. Because if someone says your salary is going to be 10,000 less, but we have a $20,000 bonus, now all of a sudden it's 10,000 more. So just make sure that you're always focused on the total compensation package and that you value what's important to you. That's really valuable. Thank you, Steve. I'm actually very curious to know what has surprised you the most about the genetic counseling hiring process over the years? I don't know if I would say it surprised me the most. It's, it's made me proud in that more and more people are negotiating. More and more people are uh, coming to the table with a really good resume, emphasizing their strong points and basically fighting for why they deserve what they do. And I've definitely noticed the difference in the last 10 to 15 years in, in how that has evolved. Uh, I think the younger generation, the 20-somethings, 30-somethings, uh, definitely are bringing a lot to the table, and it just makes me proud to be uh, a part of the profession. I think, if anything, what surprises me now is if somebody were to just accept an offer without even asking for more. I think this is going to be helpful for a lot of people. I certainly found value in your advice, uh, listening to just previous webinars as well that you've conducted. Is there anything else that you'd like to address on this topic? So I do have one piece that ties in nicely with what I just said, and that's around uh, our titles. And we talked, you know, I've, like I mentioned earlier, for 30 years I've been talking to people and trying to get uh, salaries adjusted and, and better wage. And why did I do that? Because I wanted to make more money. And the best way for me to make more money is to drive the salaries up across the board. Uh, uh, you know, I'm in California. The salaries in California were always higher ever since I've been out of school. So I needed to, I needed everybody to get their salary raised um, in order to help me. And we've come a long way. And I, I think we, we're, we've gotten to a pretty good place. I think where we are right now is this opportunity to move into so many other areas of medicine positions that genetic counselors typically have not held. And what I've seen over the years, when you look at the salary survey and you look at how people classify themselves, what's your title? I'm a genetic counselor. What's your role? I'm a genetic counselor. The fact that we have a salary survey that even has genetic counselor as a choice under, under your role, it shouldn't even be on there. Everybody filling it out is a genetic counselor. That's a given. Uh, we should be more specific. What is your role? I'm a clinical genetic counselor. I'm a lab utilization management. I'm in product development. I'm in variant science. I mean, there's 50 things that we do. And many of these things are for companies that aren't necessarily genetic companies. We work for pharma companies. We, were in, we work for uh, large commercial payers, uh, HMOs. Util lab utilization management has become a big area drug development and treatment and clinical trials and all these opportunities. Uh, genetic counselors are uniquely trained to fill so many different roles. But if my entire career, my title was genetic counselor, and then I see this great position at a pharma company and I apply for it, they're going to say, well, we don't, we're not looking for a genetic counselor. Well, they are looking for a genetic counselor. They just don't know it. 
But if my resume was filled with interesting titles that were more descriptive of my roles and my responsibilities, then my resume would be much more impressive. So I think we need to move away from uh, the title and the, the classification of genetic counselor. Yes, we're all genetic counselors. I still call myself a genetic counselor, but that's not my title. Uh, my gen genetic counselor is my training. Having something a little more descriptive, a little more relevant to your experience will go a long way, not just if getting another position within the genetic counseling field, but even more so if you wanted to move outside of genetic counseling. I've spent my career advocating for genetic counselors, but I also need the counselors to advocate for themselves. So it sounds like setting ourselves apart from this general title of genetic counselor and highlighting specific strengths is, and skills is the way to go. Absolutely. Steve, this was really valuable. Thank you so much for chatting with me today on this topic and for sharing your perspective. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and I wish everybody luck out there. That concludes this month's episode of the NSGC podcast series. The NSGC podcast series would not be possible without our dedicated subcommittee members, Naomi Wagner, Rowan Awad, and Kayla Sheets. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors. I'm your host, Kalita Leaquat. We'll see you next time.